Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Well, you made it. <laughs> Maybe you've been longing for this evening to come. Maybe you've been dreading it. Regardless, here it is. So we've been spending this last week strengthening kindness, strengthening this uh, orientation to ourselves, to others, to our experience, and to life. The Dalai Lama said, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. And that's just what we've been doing, is giving it far more attention than we normally do. In this moment-to-moment way, bringing forth this intention of goodwill, of caring. And then the long-term aspiration, or long, one's long-term, you could say, motivation, for, for one's life, you know? How do we want to be in the world? What is the effect that we want to have through our actions and through our living? So what does this all mean, this practice, as we move out into the world? You know, how do we balance these beautiful intentions with the reality? of the immense need and suffering in our world today. <clears throat> this is really where the fourth Brahma Vihara, this uh, quality known as equanimity or upeka in Pali comes in. That's, that's our support and uh, essential ingredient it's where it's what allows love to become a wise response. It's what allows love to become sustainable service in the world is equanimity. So I want to talk about what this is, uh, the role that it plays in our practice, how we develop it, and how it can show up in our lives. Uh, equanimity, you could, could say balance is one translation. Uh, It has a really central role in these teachings. Uh, The Buddha characterized this whole path as the middle path between extremes. And this shows up in a lot of different ways between the extremes of getting entangled and lost in our experience on the one hand and cutting off from it, disconnecting, checking out on the other hand. Within the practice, we balance 
calm and tranquility on the one hand, and alertness, energy, interest, aliveness on the other. In this practice of loving kindness, we balance uh, the care for others in the world with taking care of ourselves. We balance compassion with wisdom. We balance our caring with understanding, the skillfulness of how to apply it. That's wisdom. We balance our contemplation with action. We know if we only look at the bright side of things, if we only look at the light and the good, then we fail to act. I mean, if we look at the world through rose-colored glasses. But if we only look at the darkness, if we only look at the pain and the suffering, the problems, we become cynical and bitter, overwhelmed, and we can become paralyzed and not act. So this, this factor of equanimity, a wise balance, is uh, threaded throughout the whole teachings These four Brahma-viharas, these four uh, beautiful qualities or uh, best homes of our heart all work together in the practice. And uh, sometimes they're talked about with an analogy, like it's like raising a child. So metta is thought of the child's like an infant. And then the relationship is just one of, of holding of care, just unconditional love. Then as the child grows up and experiences the challenges and the pains of growing up, the relationship becomes one of compassion, of wanting to protect and alleviate the suffering. As the child grows and moves on and begins to step into their own life, you know, graduating, then the, the response is this celebration, this rejoicing with the uh, kind of growing of this being. And then as they become an adult and move into their own life, following their own way, taking care of themselves, then the result is equanimity, letting go, letting be, giving space. So these factors, they all work together and they all need each other. So equanimity helps to keep loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy or gladness. It helps to keep them uh, on course. It helps to keep them balanced. Uh, so equanimity in this sense, it means the, the understanding of the way things are, that we understand that Our intention can only go so far to produce a result. That things are going to go the way they're going to go. We can have an impact, we can influence, but ultimately certain things are out of our control. When equanimity, this wisdom of understanding the limits of our control, when we don't have that wisdom to see that things follow their own natural course, then the, the other Brahma-viharas can kind of turn off course. They can, 
they can go sour, they can go off. And we've talked about this over the course of the week, how metta can become attachment, this controlling, this grasping or holding on when there isn't the equanimity present to recognize that I love you and you have your own life. When equanimity isn't present with compassion, then it can easily become sorrow or overwhelm or burnout. Without the balance of equanimity, mudita, joy, uh, can get ungrounded. It's kind of exuberant and disconnected from reality. So metta, compassion, mudita, or sympathetic joy, these are intentions. These are orientations to experience to life. Equanimity is not an intention so much as an understanding about experience. It's an understanding that comes through our practice and it gives us balance and perspective. I want to read a a short quote that to me really exemplifies all four of these factors working together in balance. This is from... um, uh, a news, a newsman, a sportscaster in Texas named uh, Dale Hansen, who was reporting on uh, this uh, wrestler named Mac Beggs, who was uh, born a girl and uh, was in the process of transitioning to become a boy, taking testosterone. And uh, the wrestling league determined that because uh, his birth certificate said that his uh, biological sex was female, that he had to wrestle with the girls. So this is what Dale Hansen says. Mac has been taking testosterone and it shows there's a reason we have rules in sports against steroids and it was an incredibly unfair advantage for him and unfair to the girls who had to wrestle him. But the answer to the question, when does a girl become a boy? When does a boy become a girl? When can you play games against those you don't identify with and not what a piece of paper says you are? Well, that's way above my pay grade. But someone has to find a better answer than we're being given now. As I said when I wrote about Missouri football player Michael Sam, I'm not always comfortable when a man tells me he's gay. I don't understand his world but I do understand that he is a part of mine. And I am saying the same thing now about Mac Beggs. Transitioning is a struggle I cannot imagine. It's a journey I could not make, and it's a life that too many cannot live. The problems that Mac Beggs is facing and dealing with now remind me that I don't have any problems. He needs our support, and he does not need a group of old men in Austin telling him who to wrestle because of a genetic mix-up at birth. We've argued long enough about birth certificates. It's an argument that needs to end. You don't have to understand. I don't understand. But Mac Beggs is not the problem so many people make him out to be. He's a child simply looking for his place in the world and a chance to compete in the world. Do we really not have the simple decency to allow him at least that? Because it seems to me it's the very least we can do. So this very natural sense of 
care and compassion, connection, and the balance, the balance to recognize, I don't need to understand, I don't have all the answers, but this much I know, that the way we're responding is not helpful. So when equanimity isn't present with metta, we've said it can become, Sharon uses this phrase, metta with an edge. And that edge is that conditionality, I'll love you if, right? So as we practice loving kindness, it moves not only towards not having that edge of conditionality, but not having the edge of a boundary. So the movement in the categories from those near and dear to those who are more neutral, to those who are difficult, to large categories and groups is a movement towards equanimity, towards having an impartiality in our spirit of goodwill, that we're kind to all regardless, because that's the value that we hold for ourselves because we we see the goodness, or at least the potential for goodness in everyone. So what is this, this factor, this equanimity, this balance of mind? It's a kind of perspective that comes from wisdom. It sees the whole range of joy and sorrow in our life, the ups and the downs, and within all of that, it's able to stay balanced because it understands this is the way it goes. So wisdom in Buddhist practice isn't intellectual. It's not about having more information. It's very grounded and down to earth. It means that uh, we know which way the wind blows. And in the Buddhist tradition, we talk about uh, the way that the wind blows and it blows in these different directions all throughout our life for each and every one of us. We all experience pleasure and pain. They come and they go. We all experience loss and gain. Things come to us and then they leave us. We all experience praise and blame. The Buddha said they Blame those who speak much, they blame those who speak little. They, speak, they blame those who do not speak at all. There is no one who is free from blame. And then fame and disrepute, uh, reputation. So these, these four pairs, the world revolves around them. They just come and they go. Is there anyone who's free from pleasure and pain? Is there anyone who's free from loss and gain? So the question is when these, when these conditions of life touch us, how do we respond? Do we become pulled around and pushed around by them when the pleasant ones come, gain and praise and fame and pleasure? Do we get obsessed? Do we, do we chase after them and try to hold on to them and get attracted by them? When the unpleasant ones come, pain and and loss and blame and disrepute, do we lose it? Do we get repelled? Do we sink? 
Or are we able to see them as they are to know, oh, this is, this is the deal here, right? Everyone gets this. Everyone gets both. They just come and they go. And then it's not up to us in a lot of, t- a lot of the time. So this is the nature of things. And we can reflect on this. Everything in this world has this, this changing rhythm. The night and the day, the in-breath and the out-breath, our heartbeat, everything is changing, coming and going. Only wanting the pleasure and the gain and the praise, it's like only wanting to breathe in, never have to breathe out. It's ridiculous, right? But isn't that the way we think about it? How much energy do we put into our lives trying to manipulate circumstances to avoid the flip side? So equanimity is born of understanding the nature of things, that this is just the way it is. They come and they go. I, uh, I went camping a few weeks ago in um, California in the this place in the Eastern Sierras called the Ancient Bristlecone Pine Forest. It's up at about 10,000 feet, and there are these particular pine trees called bristlecone pines. They live in extraordinarily harsh conditions. It's 10,000 feet. The soil is very, very poor and rocky, and it doesn't rain much. And these uh, trees happen to be the oldest living trees on Earth. 3,500 years old, 4,000 years old, 4,500 years old. They grow very slowly because the conditions are so harsh. They only grow a very, very fraction, small, small amount each year. So the wood is very dense and hard and resinous, which protects them from drought and bugs and... um, The trees, the trunks are often like half dead. So a lot of the wood has died and then there'll be this bark and part of the tree that's still living. And it's remarkable to be up at 10,000 feet. You know, the snow-covered peaks of the Sierras are all around and uh, be with these trees that were living the time of Jesus, at the time of Buddha, before them. And then to think about one's own life. <laughs> how, how much we rush around, you know? From the perspective of one of these trees, we must seem like this, these manic creatures, <laughs> you know? So this is, this is starting to, to, to point to the, the steadiness of equanimity that just sees the changes that come and go, come and go, come and go, and that stays steady because it just understands that's the way it goes. That's what life, that's what life is made of, these changing conditions. When, when we don't have equanimity and we're touched by these worldly winds of gain and loss and praise and blame, the mind shakes and trembles and wobbles, very unstable. 
So equanimity is talked about also as a fruit of practice, as a result of practice. It's one of the highest results of practice. One sutta called the Mangala Sutta, the sutta on the highest blessings. Equanimity is one of the last blessings that the Buddha mentions after awakening. After awakening, then the Buddha says, a mind and heart when touched by these worldly winds, one that remains unshaken, sorrowless, dustless, secure, this is the highest blessing. So that steadiness, that evenness in the face of changing conditions. So I want to say a little bit about what equanimity isn't. So it's clear that equanimity is not this reactivity, the way we get pulled around by our desires and our aversions and wanting things to be a certain way. But it's also, it's not indifference. And this is the this is that near miss. It kind of can seem like equanimity, but when you look closely, it's clear that it's not. When the other Brahma-viharas aren't present, when that caring isn't present, equanimity can become indifference. It's called uh, the equanimity of not knowing or stupid equanimity. (laughs) It's an escape or a defense. It's about not wanting to feel and shutting off indifference. That's not equanimity. This is from Ajahn Suchito who writes, apathy has a dulling quality to it, an ignorance, a shrug. There's no shrug in equanimity. It has clarity, sensitivity, and stability, a wise space. There's no shrug in equanimity. Equanimity still cares. It just sees clearly. It's also not a thing. It's not a state. I've got to get to equanimity now. That's the thing. I've got to get there. I've got to get equanimity. That's craving. It's not a state. It's dynamic. It's a balance. Where's balance? Can you show me balance? Can you get balance? It's a poise. It's like this dynamic equilibrium. It's sensitive and responsive. It's alive. It's a living wisdom that knows how to roll with things and stay balanced. It's not numbing out. Equanimity doesn't mean that we don't feel anything or that we're not able to take action. Equanimity is actually the spaciousness that allows us to feel and allows us to act from a place of balance and clarity rather than from a a place of reactivity, fear, control, manipulation. I often reflect on the the Buddha as an example of this, the, the potency of equanimity. He taught for 45 years walking over the land of ancient India. He was a pretty active guy, (laughs) you know? He didn't have to teach. He could have just enjoyed his enlightenment. But out of compassion, he chose to to teach. But he also didn't get frazzled and stressed out by it. He just did what he could. He just responded to what was there and did the best that he could. And sometimes it went well and sometimes it didn't. His first teaching was a failure. 
he met someone on the road after his enlightenment and they said, who are you? What's your teaching? And he said, I am the great awakened one. I am the all-knowing. I am, you know, and the guy just kind of looked at him and says, may it be so, friend, and walked off, you know, <laughs> good luck. So, okay, maybe try to teach a little bit different next time. <laughs> when his two chief disciples died, Sariputta and Moggallana, he said, he looked out at the assembly and he said, it's like, it's like the assembly is empty for me with them gone. It's like the, a great branch of a tree has broken off. So you can imagine this, the feeling there, this sense of really being affected by it. And then he said, and it's amazing, my mind is not shaken, my mind is not disturbed. So the balance within the ability to feel and to care. So the metaphor for equanimity is not distance. It's not this cold distance. It's perspective. It's, it's space. When this quality is developed in us, we have a very wide space to live in. We can still feel things. Stuff comes up. But it's like being in a wide space. It's like the difference between standing in an elevator with someone you don't like and standing in a vast park. Lots of space. So how do we develop this? Where does it come from? So in light of what our mind normally does, this roller coaster of life getting tossed around, you can see it. It takes some work. Equanimity grows slowly. It grows slowly over time, like those bristlecone pines. Through patience, through, through reflection, through looking closely, it grows through insight practice. And it grows through embodied practice, through allowing ourselves to feel things, to feel the ups and downs. Sometimes we need to be rocked by life in order to learn how to stay balanced and how to ride the waves. So we can reflect on the truth of things. When the, when the inevitable changes come in life, losing a job, losing a loved one, losing one's health, success, getting a job, finding a relationship, regaining one's health, to just reflect and notice the response in the heart. To start to work there with the successes and the failures, the gains and the loss. And study, study, reflect on, say, oh right, this is, this, is what the, this is the nature of things. That they change, that they come and they go. How does this feel? Sayadaw Tejaniya, a teacher from Burma, says, don't try to maintain equanimity. Only try to maintain awareness. We can't really do equanimity. If we try to do equanimity, we end up freezing or tightening or, or trying to control. So our job is to stay aware, to stay engaged and connected and to feel. And then the learning happens. Equanimity grows at the edges of our reactivity. So within our reactivity, 
really liking something, getting swept up in it, or really not liking something, feeling pained and hurt, distressed, whether it's personal, social, political, it's at the edges of our reactivity with our ability to stay present and hold it and be aware that equanimity starts to grow. So we've talked a little bit on this retreat about uh, taking things in in small doses, right? This word titrating, it comes from biology, just taking a little dose. So we take a little dose of our reactivity. We go in and we go out. We stay with something and then we take a break. We stay with it some more and then we take a break. It's by allowing ourselves to feel that shaking of reactivity that the mind starts to learn how to allow it, how to stay steady. In my own life, uh, two of the things that have taught me the most about equanimity uh, are my health and my family, immediate family. So uh, with my health, I had a good... uh, I don't know, 12 years of um, training with digestive issues, working with that, practicing with that, hating it, learning to let go, wanting to eat foods that weren't good for me, letting go, uh, having metta for my body. And uh, I was up at the monastery in Canada um, just about a week before I left and um, woke up one morning with a tick in my leg. And sure enough, I got lucky. Not just one, but two uh, tick-borne illnesses. And so, you know, thus began a several-year process of being quite ill and doctors and medicine and giving myself injections and, you know, the whole whole thing. Very difficult. Uh, a lot of equanimity practice. This is the way it is, you know. I don't want I don't want this to be happening. I don't like it, but this is how it is. You know, reflecting on illness, reflecting on nature of the body, reflecting on, you know, there've been times in history where, you know, five ten percent of the population wiped out by some disease. Places in the world today where there's not clean water, there isn't basic medical care for things that are, that are treatable. So, why should I be any different, right? This is, this is the nature of things. Going back in my mind over and over again, the night before, what did I, if only I, how come, you know, if, could, if, if it would have been different, and seeing the suffering in that, replaying it, wishing, trying to, you know, it could have been different the lack of equanimity. And and again and again, coming back to that place of, you know, can I find some acceptance within this? Because this is what's happening. Now here's the key. That acceptance didn't mean that I stopped trying to get well. I didn't stop going to doctors. I didn't stop taking medicine. I acted. I still acted but it was from a very different place. 
wasn't from this place of fear or, you know, demanding, I have to get well. What if I don't get well? It was from a place of, this is the way it is. I would like to be well, and it's not in my control, but I'm still going to do everything I can. I'm still going to do what I can to change the conditions. Understanding that it's not up to me. And then with, uh, with family, you know, seeing the, seeing the ones we love suffer. Not being able to help. Believing if you only did this, you would be better. If you only listened to me. <laughs> right? Being able to be with the helplessness of loving someone and not being able to change them. This is where metta and equanimity come together. Without equanimity, you can't have metta in that situation because the attachment is too strong, that desire for it to be different. It's the equanimity that recognizes, I love you and I can't make your choices for you. I love you and I can't keep you safe. You know, we each have our own path. These are equanimity phrases reflecting on this, reflecting on this truth. This is the way it is. This is the truth of things. doesn't mean I stop loving you. It doesn't mean I stop acting. It doesn't mean I stop speaking up and saying, I'm really concerned. I don't think this is healthy. I'd like you to do something different. It just means that it's not coming from that place of grasping and desperation. And then... Ironically, there's often more space to be heard, right? Because we recognize that it's going to go the way it's going to go. And I'm going to have integrity and respond as wisely and skillfully as I can. Equanimity understands the limits of our control in this world. There's a story about the famous meditation master from Thailand, Ajahn Chah, the great masters of the last century. Apparently he had a a crystal cup that was his favorite cup, and he used to hold it up and say, you see this cup? This is my favorite cup. To me, it's already broken. That's the wisdom of equanimity. He understood so clearly the nature of conditions. The nature of that cup is to shatter. It's just a matter of time. And then we can use it freely. And when it breaks, ah, that was its time. There it goes. It's following its nature. Nothing's gone wrong. Right? How often when something happens, do we have that response? No, this shouldn't be happening. It's not supposed to be. Where is it written? It's not supposed to be. Who says so? Nothing's gone wrong. Is dying wrong? Is getting sick wrong? That's the nature of things. So we practice with these places by bringing our awareness to that edge, to the edge of our discomfort and our resistance, to the edge of that place that says, no, 
I don't want it to be that way. That, that tightening. Bring our awareness right to that edge and hold it with tenderness. It's at that edge that awareness meets the reactivity. That's where equanimity grows. By being able to bring awareness to that place. It's like when you have a, a cut or a, a scrape, that wound starts to heal at the edges, not at the center. And sometimes it takes a long time for the body to heal it, but it's a natural process. And so it is with equanimity. It's a natural process. It develops over time by bringing awareness to the pain, the reactivity, the should, the resistance. This is the embodied practice that leads to equanimity. So there's the reflection, there's the wisdom piece, the remembering. This is the nature of things. Gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. Everything that's born dies. How could it be otherwise? Through wise reflection, through embodied exploration and tenderness, feeling what it feels like to not have equanimity. And then it grows. And it grows through insight, through, through looking clearly at the nature of experience and actually seeing change directly. When equanimity develops and grows, we, we, uh, we develop this sense of stability inside. There's a confidence that I can be with this. Come what may, I can be with this. There's space to hold it. Equanimity allows a feeling to enter, to be felt, and then to pass, to go on. It's, it's a heart that doesn't resist, doesn't get cramped or dismiss the world. It's big enough to embrace everything, to include everything. So when we find that balance, when that, when that spaciousness is present, it gives us an ability to respond and to act from a different place. It gives us the ability to include the vast forces of change that are sweeping across our planet. Seeing the way things are, really deeply understanding the limits of our control, it doesn't mean we don't act. It makes our action more sustainable. It makes our action more effective. Uh, Mahagosananda, who many of you probably know of, was a great practitioner and monk from Cambodia uh, during the time of Pol Pot. He would lead these peace marches across Cambodia, knocking on the doors of the families whose sons were fighting in the Civil War, and he would say apparently to the parents, tell your sons to put down their rifles and kill the hatred that's in their heart. He would travel to the refugee camps in, uh, not sure if it was Thailand or Burma, next to Laos, and uh, give out copies of the Metta Sutta and chant the Metta Sutta. Just doing what one could.
It's a hard time for our species on this planet. We're so sensitive. We, we feel things. We f- it's how we're built. We feel pleasure and pain. And we're wired to care. We're wired. It's in ourselves to, to love and to long for love. We're, we, we form that way in relationship through touch and care and empathy. And it's painful to, uh, to see the gap. And we're capable of so much as human beings. We're capable of so much goodness, so much beauty, so much tenderness. To see the gap between that and so much of what's happening all over the planet, here at home in our own country. It breaks the heart. And sometimes I think we need to let our heart break, just to break open. And without equanimity, the the pain, the immensity of this particular moment in human history, the the heart, it either it, it can turn bitter, it can turn to rage or anger, or just shut off, just numb out. This is why we need equanimity. This is why we need these practices of loving kindness and compassion to help the heart stay supple and alive and responsive in the face of all of this. To stay connected to the vision of what's possible. The poet by the name of Eve Merriam who said, I dream of giving birth to a child who will ask mother, What was war? The woman by the name of Erica Chenworth, who's written a book called Why Civil Resistance Works, and she did a meta-analysis of um, uh, a hundred years, from 1900 to 2006, of campaigns for change, and showed that um, campaigns of nonviolent resistance were more than twice as effective as their violent counterparts. And when you look at the civil rights movement or uh, Gandhi's movement in India, they trained. They trained for that. They had role plays and coaches and they trained for uh, how to stay equanimous, how to not react when the hoses were turned on, when the dogs were let loose, when physical violence was used. We have this potential. This is from uh, Thomas Merton who wrote, about the transformation that happens with equanimity in terms of our response to the world. 
He says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and may achieve no result at all, or even results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. Equanimity gives us that ability to act, not because we we need to control the outcome, but because it's the right thing to do, because we're living in line with our values, because we say, I can't not act in response to this. Loving kindness practice transforms the basis of our action from reactivity to love, from control to care. And equanimity informs that action with understanding and wisdom that makes it balanced, that makes it sustainable. Equanimity protects us from burning out, from getting exhausted from trying to control or from the heart corroding from anger and bitterness and resentment. Equanimity protects our compassion from turning into overwhelm or burnout or sorrow. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of strength to face the truth. You know, the truths that this country has still to this day never come to terms with, the truth of our histories. You know, that this country is founded on genocide and slavery. That's the truth. And we as a society have not come to terms with that. It's not enough equanimity for the collective psyche to acknowledge that truth. The United States government has never made a formal apology for either. It's mind-boggling. We need to bring wisdom to bear. We need to actually investigate and look closely at the truth of things and to stay balanced, to recognize that there is the possibility of bringing forth kindness, of bringing forth compassion. There is good in each of us and in the world. And we have that possibility of watering those seeds, of expressing it, and of not burning out. It's a man by the name of uh, Jarvis Masters. Does anyone know about Jarvis? He was, uh, he grew up in California. Uh, he's a absent father's drug-addicted mother on heroin and basically grew up surrounded by violence and abandonment and abuse, shifted from institution to institution. And ended up in San Quentin prison in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in the early 80s, and um, in, the, in the 90s, he was uh, convicted of um, a murder that happened in the prison, um, uh, most likely falsely, 
there's a lot around the the conviction that was uh, questionable and uh, he came in contact with the Dharma and started practicing um, you know he wrote uh, I'm in trouble I practice because I'm in trouble and practice is a must for me I already know what happens when I don't practice and it ain't too cool I've seen too many people go crazy in here. I figure you've got three choices. You're either going to go crazy or kill yourself. You just go dead inside, in your soul, if not your body. You have to find something to sustain you in a spiritual realm. You've got to take care of yourself when things go wrong. How do you get out of prison in prison? That's the question I've been asking myself. We're always looking at a wall here. One time when I was first meditating, it came to me. I can't climb the walls, but I can make them disappear. I told this to my teacher, my Rinpoche, when he visited me, and he just smiled and snapped his fingers in the air. He had tears in his eyes. So Jarvis um, started practicing and started teaching the other prisoners about practice. And uh, in one of his essays, uh, he writes about trying to help a young convict uh, called Boss Hog, young man full of rage. He came into the prison screaming, I'll kill you all. And he taught him um, uh, mindfulness gata, a little poem, a verse from Thich Nhat Hanh. And so he sent him uh, some tobacco wrapped in a Buddhist text in exchange for Boss Hogg's promise to, uh, quote, stay cool and not go disturbing the peace on the tear again. And when uh, Boss Hogg was finally released, he stood in front of you know Jarvis's cell, and together they recited this uh, this verse that he learned to say whenever he was about to blow his top. If we are peaceful, if we are happy, we can smile, and everyone in our family, our entire society, will benefit from our peace. So this is the cultivation of equanimity in the face of great rage, to have that presence of mind, to hold, to hold the energy of that, and to not to not act on it. So where do we begin? So this is also from Tiknat Han. This is one of my favorite quotes of his that I came across early in my practice. He writes, When you produce peace and happiness in yourself, you begin to realize peace for the whole world. With that smile that you produce in yourself, with the conscious breathing you establish within yourself, you begin to work for peace in the world. If you do not give yourself peace, How can you share it with others? If you do not begin your peace work with yourself, where will you go to begin it? One of the things I love about that quote is that it's clear that it doesn't end there. It begins there. We have to end the war here. We have to work here as a basis and as we work here, we also work there. And Thich Nhat Hanh was uh, in Vietnam during the war and the bombs were falling. You know, he 
and his monks left the temple and went into the village because they couldn't not respond to the suffering. You know, compassion doesn't mean we just sit here and say, may you be well, may you be free from suffering. When there's someone who's hurt, we reach out. Equanimity, when we understand, you know, pleasure and pain comes and goes. If there's a little child who falls and skins his knee, you don't go, ah, pain, that's the way it is. <laughs> oh, you go, you say, oh, you okay? Come, let me help you. Here, we'll clean it off. You comfort that child. You hold that child, Right? Equanimity doesn't say, oh my God, this is awful, right? That would be terrible. The child would be scared. It's not the indifference and it's not that flipping out, but it's that wise, balanced response that understands what's needed and is able to do it in a balanced way. These practices, the Brahmi Viharas, are are often referred to as the immeasurables. Appamana, immeasurable. And I think they're immeasurable in their potential for cultivation, that we can cultivate a heart that's vast, that has no boundaries, no edges to our care. But I think it's also, they're immeasurable in the potential for their impact. And I would guess that each of you here has experienced that. The power of one moment of kindness towards yourself or one moment of compassion for someone in your life. I think we're so hungry, so thirsty for kindness. And we have that potential to bring it forth to offer it to ourselves, to offer it to others. We have that potential to respond, to act, to engage. And we can't do everything, but we can do something. And it's for each of us to find out what that something is. What's your path? What's your calling? What's your response? What's your duty in this life? I want to close with... Uh, with a quote, with two quotes, one from the Buddha. I'll start with that. This is how you should train yourselves to liberate the heart and mind through kindness. Cultivate kindness. Follow it. Practice it and develop it. Let kindness be your guide, your vehicle. Steady yourself with kindness until it is consolidated and thoroughly practiced, a ground and a basis for all things. This is how you should train yourself. And that's what we've been doing, moment by moment, training ourselves in kindness. In uh, the Jewish tradition, there's something called uh, tikkun olam. Tikkun means healing or repair, and olam means world, the healing of the world, the repair of the world. And it's, it's uh, considered one of the 
kind of duties of a Jew to engage in this process of the healing and repair of the world. And uh, there's a, a quote by one of the rabbis uh, that I think really captures the essence of this understanding of equanimity in the face of great suffering and need. He writes, the task is not yours to complete, nor are you free to desist from it. The task is not yours to complete, nor are you free to desist from it. So we have this potential and we know the way, one moment at a time, doing our best to stay present, to stay balanced, and to bring forth kindness. So let's sit together for a moment. We have time for some walking and then we'll come back for the last sitting and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.